Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, JAAD webcast series, November 23rd, 2022. I'm Dr. Brad Glick, and I am a Clinical Assistant Professor of Dermatology at the Florida International University Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine in Miami, Florida. I will be your host. Our topic today is routine rescreening for latent tuberculosis has low utility in patients with chronic immune-mediated inflammatory diseases treated with biologics. This research letter was published in the October 2022 issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Joining me today to discuss this article are two of its authors, Dr. Ermi Khanna and Dr. Anthony Fernandez. Dr. Ermi Khanna is a second-year dermatology resident at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York. Dr. Khanna is a trained dermatologist from India who received her medical degree from the VMMC and the Jung Hospital in New Delhi, India, and went on to complete her dermatology residency in New Delhi. Subsequently, Dr. Khanna pursued a research fellowship in dermatology at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, where one of her projects focused on tuberculosis screening practices in patients on biologics. During her residency, she actively involved in clinical research and has authored more than 45 peer-reviewed manuscripts. Ermi, welcome. Thank you so much, Dr. Glick. It's a pleasure to be here. Also joining us today is Dr. Anthony Fernandez. Dr. Fernandez completed his dermatology residency at the University of Miami in Miami, Florida, and a dermatopathology fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. He currently practices both medical dermatology and dermatopathology and serves as director of medical and inpatient dermatology at the clinic. Clinically, he specializes in the treatment of systemic autoimmune and inflammatory diseases with prominent cutaneous involvement. His research interests mirror his clinical interests and ongoing projects involving psoriasis, dermatomyositis, lupus erythematosus, and pemphigus vulgaris. He is also active in a variety of national professional organizations and was recently the chair of the Finance Committee of the American Society of Dermatopathology. Dr. Fernandez is also the lead author of this very timely article that we would discuss today. Tony, welcome. Thank you, Brad. It's a pleasure to be here and talk to you today. To you as well. So I want to jump in and get started. This is a very timely topic. But what I want to do before we get into specific questions about this research letter is, Tony, we'll start with you. Give me some context as to the rationale uh, for this this article, for this research letter and and its significance. And and then we'll hand it over to Ermi as well. Sure. Well, Brad, I think ever since the TNF-alpha inhibitors became popular to use in patients, especially with psoriasis, but other immune-mediated diseases, as you know, it became standard to screen patients for latent tuberculosis on an annual basis. And that practice has been carried over to other biologics over the years. And although some societies have changed their guidelines, what we have seen in recent years is that a lot of clinicians are confused about how best to screen patients for latent tuberculosis. And perhaps even more importantly, what we've found is that there are insurance companies who mandate that patients have annual latent TB screening tests in order to approve refills for biologics. And so we wanted to 
really study the utility of serial latent TB screening tests on an annual basis for all patients on biologics. And that's really what this study was about. And boy, did you ever in that article. It's fabulous. Uh, Ermi, do you want to add something to that just from your optics, particularly since this has been an area of interest of yours as well? Yeah, I think Dr. Fernandez uh, covered it all. And one other thing that I would like to add is that a lot of these screening guidelines were initially developed for the TNF-alpha inhibitor class of biologics. And without any research or you know evidence, basically, they've been extrapolated to the other class of biologics. So in this study, we aimed to study, uh, you know, we aimed to evaluate not just the TNF-alpha inhibitors in immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, but essentially several classes of biologics used across multiple specialties. Fantastic. You know, the biggest concern that even I have when I'm screening patients in general, before I put them on any immunosuppressive therapy, including biologics, is the reactivation of latent TB. You know, it's not just biologics, it could be cyclosporin. You had one patient who developed active TB while taking a biologic. Did this patient have any symptoms suggestive of TB? What was your plan of action? And was the patient able to ultimately continue therapy or did they have to discontinue? I'll start off with you, Tony. Yeah, th this patient actually was a man who was taking adalimumab. He had ankylosing spondylitis, as well as another immune-mediated disease for which TNF-alpha inhibitors are warranted. And he had had numerous symptoms for, I believe, at least a month, fever, weight loss, night sweats. So, you know, sort of hallmark fevers, symptoms suggestive of latent tuberculosis, which we think is important. You know, you're right. And the most important factor here when thinking about screening is your worry about the risk of reactivation of latent tuberculosis. And I think it may mean something that when we found one patient who actually did have reactivation, there were clear signs and symptoms that that was occurring. Ermi, want to add to that? Obviously, very comprehensive answer, and it's one patient, but you know, any other thoughts in that regard with the implications to someone developing these signs and symptoms of TB? And when we're counseling our patients, you know, we're going to talk to them, even if it's the newer generation products, 23s, 17s, which we're going to get into, I'm sure we'll discuss those ramifications. You know, TNF's a very different story. And we know we can unleash that TB granuloma. But what are the thoughts that you have that are pertinent here? So the other thing that I would like to add is this man had traveled to both India and the Middle East at, you know, in that one year period after initiating the uh, adalimumab. So I think besides the symptoms of four week to a month duration, it was the presence of those two very important risk factors which may have come up during evaluation at the time of his conversion result. So I think this really highlights that our patient, that one case of active tuberculosis that we found in our entire study cohort had A, risk factors, very prominent risk factors in the form of travel to endemic area, and B, he was also manifesting clear-cut symptoms and signs at the time of conversion. 
it kind of makes us step away a little bit and start thinking about what our criteria are for screening in general, and then can ultimately even rescreening. Uh, you mentioned in, in the in the letter in the study, 38% of patients that converted to a positive quantifiron gold, and within the study that there were false positive results. What should clinicians be suspicious of where false quantifiron results are concerned? How do we synthesize that? Are there predictors? Should we be reverting back and mostly being PPDs that we read ourselves? What do we do when we get that? Well, we suspect it's false positive. So, Ermi, you're shaking your head as we are on video here. Let me hear from you first, and then I'll hand it over to Tony. Yes, I think that's a great question, Dr. Glick. Positive quantiferon test results should definitely be interpreted in the light of the level of the result itself. By this, I mean that there are several studies in the literature that have shown when the quantiferon positive test result is between 0.35 to 0.99, essentially less than one international unit per ml, the chances of reverting back to a negative result in about four weeks without any intervention has been seen in about more than 50% patients. So that value between 0.35 to 0.99, essentially called as a borderline positive quantiferon test result, should be interpreted very carefully by clinicians as it can very frequently revert to a negative test result on subsequent retesting. And even in our study, we found the same thing about 83% patients who had values of their quantiferon test results more than one IU per ml were the ones who truly had had a true positive conversion. So clinicians should look at the level of the positive quantiferon result. And when it's borderline positive, it may be valuable to consider a single repeat test before they initiate, you know, an entire chain of referrals and treatment, etc. Tony, you want to add to some of those comments? And then I actually have a follow-up question, but go ahead. No, I, I think Ermi is spot on. I think it's, you know, it's very challenging to get a positive test and feel confident it's false positive. So, of course, once you get that positive result, you have to take it seriously. But as Ermi has pointed out, there have been more recent studies to suggest that there may be this borderline range of positivity. And when your result is within that range, then instead of ordering a battery of tests that accumulate a lot of healthcare costs, probably the smartest thing to do is simply repeat that test because that research has suggested that a lot of times that second test will revert back to a, a negative result and you feel confident it really was false positive. You know, my follow-up comment slash question is, I would think that most of our colleagues are thinking that the quantiferon goal, which is probably the most popular interferon test for tuberculosis screening, think of it as a qualitative test. It's either positive or negative. But what I'm hearing from Ermi, though, is that we need to maybe take a step back and understand the test about uh, a little bit better, uh, myself included. 
sounds like an opportunity for some podium education so that we understand better how to interpret the test because otherwise well maybe we'll be random randomly repeating tests which we might do anyway but on the other hand it seems to me like there's a little bit more need for knowledge base before we move on i want to ask is do both of you in that scenario just look at the value and then pan ultimately depending on where it sits repeat the test or do you sometimes just place a PPD that you would read yourself? What are your thoughts on that? Tony? It's very challenging here at the Cleveland Clinic right now to actually place a PPD. So typically what we'll do is simply repeat the test. And obviously if it's positive again, even if it's in that low range, then we treat it as a positive result and we act upon it and include colleagues sometimes in infectious diseases to determine what is the next best step. If it's negative, however, on that second test, then again, I think everything, of course, everything in medicine is within the context of the clinical situation. So if we believe our patient really has a low risk of having contracted latent tuberculosis and that second test is negative, then we treat that initial positive test as a false positive and just move on with our treatment plan. Fantastic and very helpful for me as a clinician practicing in the trenches as well. About 200 patients in your study had indeterminate quantifiorn results, but only two of those patients were eventually treated for latent TB. Can you explain a little bit more about the factors that contribute to these indeterminate results? And then also, you know, what happened to the other 198? Ermi, you want to comment first, and then we'll hand it over to Dr. Fernandez. Sure. So a quantiferon test result, you know, it's an interferon gamma release assay. It's one of uh, the IGRAs, and it's pretty sensitive and specific, like sensitivity of 80%, specificity of 95%. And the results that we get, this test actually gives us either a positive, negative, or an indeterminate result with respect to the mitogen that's used in the quantiferon testing. So as you mentioned, Dr. Glick, we got about 200 indeterminate tests out of our cohort of 5,212 patients. And uh, a few factors can contribute to indeterminate QFTs. And most importantly, immunosuppression or something which basically affects the T cells is the most important factor. And this has been shown in previous research and our study findings also aligned with what has been shown that immunosuppression affects the QFTs and can prompt an indeterminate result. So in our study, we found about 97.5% of patients with the indeterminate result actually had a very low mitogen response. And close to 50% of them were on concomitant steroids and about 40% were even receiving other immunosuppressives. So which it clearly explains the reason for their indeterminate quantiferon result. And you bring up a very valid question as to what happened to the 198 patients that were not like basically just to rewind a little bit. Out of these 200 patients, two were treated for latent tuberculosis infection and 198 were not. And in those patients, the indeterminate test caused a lot of confusion 
prompting subsequent workup, referrals, and it again brings us to the starting point of this discussion that these tests need to be interpreted very carefully in the light of risk factors, immunosuppression, and essentially the level of the result itself. So we have this fantastic article, this letter, this research letter. We have the brain trust of the article here. Tony, tell me, what do we do with indeterminate tests? And what do you do at the clinic? That's a great question. So I think, first of all, our number, the number of indeterminate results that we had, again, sort of underscores the importance of really ordering this test in the right population of individuals and not just ordering it in every single patient on a biologic, especially knowing that immunosuppression can affect that T cell response to those mycobacteria peptides and, and cause an indeterminate result. Once you have an indeterminate result, I think it does create confusion. And I think you have to, again, you have to think about that patient and why may that result have been indeterminate? Is it because the patient is on immunosuppression? Other risk factors that we know may cause an indeterminate result. And I think what we typically do in our real world practice, again, is often repeat the test and see if it reverts to, to a negative result. But if it's indeterminate again, or if it's positive, then again, we end up ordering more tests involving colleagues. So it can create a lot of work. So again, I think the most important point in all of this is we really need to start ordering this test in the right population of patients. I want to once again add that, you know, even for me as a clinician, it makes me want to step back and rethink my prompting of how I'm ordering it, who I'm ordering it in, and have to really look back at whatever concurrent medications our patients are taking. This is a really good opportunity to talk about what are your personal screening practices for patients on biologics? Any differences in your screening patients on TNF inhibitors versus other biologics like our newer generation interleukin-17, 1223, or 23 blockers? Tony? Yeah, so right now I do order latent TB screening tests on every patient who I am planning to start a biologic on. However, in terms of repeating those TB screening tests, I'll usually talk to the patients about any recent travel to international countries. I make sure I know what they do for a living. Do they work in healthcare? Do they work in a jail system? And if they've been exposed to anyone with active TB since I have last seen them, and if, if those answers are yes, then I will repeat a latent TB screening test. But if they're no, and I feel the patient is at extremely low risk for reversion from negative to a positive result, then I will not order the test. And that's my current practice. And I do it for all biologics. There's some very interesting data recently that suggests that at least report a number of patients with latent TB who have not been treated prophylactically for that latent TB and then ultimately started on either interleukin-17A inhibitors or interleukin-23 inhibitors, and none of them have developed reactivation of latent TB. So I think that's interesting and data, a story that we need to follow. 
But in my own opinion, I think that there are too few patients reported and those patients have not been followed long enough to just assume that it's very safe to give those medications to patients with latent TB without treating them. And so in that case, I think you do want to screen and know whether they have latent TB and then make a decision about, you know, the risk of giving them that medicine or not before starting the biologic. Ermi, some additions to those comments? Yeah, I think that's pretty much what we practice here also. It's slightly different though in New York because we have an immigrant population and some of the city hospitals, like we are seeing more of immigrant population. And in those patients, we definitely have a lower threshold to repeat the quantiferon test. And again, it brings us to the same point that we have to evaluate for those risk factors. And there may be a low threshold to repeat the quantiferon test in certain geographic locations, especially where we have a higher immigrant population, which changes the incidence slash prevalence of tuberculosis for that particular region. Oh, well, this has been fantastic. I mean, and you're really comprehensively explained, I believe, to the audience, the scenarios that we need to look for and look at when we're evaluating these patients upon not only initial screening, but in consideration for repeat screening. But it seems to me like those are special circumstances. And while we do our initial screenings, as are indicated even by uh, Academy National Psoriasis Foundation guidelines, you know, pan ultimately on our patients that are healthy, that are not on steroids, that are not on immunosuppressants, which for a lot of our psoriasis patients, for instance, as opposed to those people that have other auto-inflammatory conditions or have IBD or ankylosing spondylitis, as you referenced before, Dr. Fernandez, it seems to me that moving forward, individuals don't have to be, be screened because we, we spend a lot of money on these tests, at least pan ultimately if they have had that baseline screening. As we close, uh, any additional comments that you have in general regarding screening, regarding psoriasis? And, and I'll, I'll throw that question out to both of you. Tony? Sure. Yeah, I think uh, certainly, Brad, our research is not the only research in this area. And we were flattered to have a reply to our article from some authors in Italy who really voiced their opinion about that they agreed with us and they face similar issues there. So this is an international problem. And look, I think I don't want it to sound like the quantiferon tests are bad tests. They're fabulous tests. But I think we really need a group who can look at the value and the correct populations of people to use this test on, especially serial testing to guide clinicians really all over the world. I think we all recognize that right now we need to be very efficient in how we spend healthcare dollars and then also treating our patients so we optimize their treatment in terms of making them better and minimize harm. So I think we really need a a committee to really look at this and publish some evidence-based guidelines given what we know at the current time. This sounds like a great opportunity for a podium talk at the American Academy of Dermatology annual meeting in New Orleans. 
And I would volunteer Dr. Anthony Fernandez and Dr. Ermi Khanna to do such a talk uh, for that education, because that's really what I get out of this podcast, is that we need a little bit of a better understanding of these tests and our patient selection accordingly, and who and who we are not screening and even rescreen. So I want to take this opportunity to thank you both very much not only for this enlightening publication, and also reporting to us that there was a response for the Italians who use a lot of biologics. I was just with them at the Dermatology to the Stars with Dr. Paolo Romanelli and at the University of Miami, who I know you know very well, Dr. Fernandez. Uh, but I also want to thank you both for taking the opportunity for participating in this JAAD Dialogues in Dermatology podcast. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving and a great holiday season. You too, Brad. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Dr. Glick. You too. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.